Well, we're going to read the Bible together just now. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you've got one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page 300, page 300. So we've been getting back into 1 Samuel. We're going to finish 1 Samuel today. And uh, these last few chapters tell two stories that are interwoven, the story of Saul and his demise, but then also the story of David. And Peter is going to take us through these uh, closing chapters of 1 Samuel as we look at the story of David in these chapters. We're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 27, page 300, and then Peter will be referring to other later chapters also. So page 300, 1 Samuel 27, we remember that this is God's Word. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maoch, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahonam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gerishites and the Gergesites and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jerumel, or against the Negev Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought, they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to him, he has and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. Amen. We trust that God will give us help to understand his word today. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, then please do open it to 1 Samuel chapter 27 initially. We've reached, reached the end of this book of 1 Samuel. Last week, we saw the climax of the demise of Saul, a strange and dark episode with the witch of Endor, and then followed by his own death and defeat in chapter 31. One of the things you notice as you read the end of 1 Samuel is that the action shifts backwards and forwards between Saul and David. 
It's a bit like one of your favorite TV shows. Sometimes there are whole episodes where you follow one character and his or her storyline, but the other main characters hardly ever appear. But then invariably what happens is that the next episode in the series focuses on a different character and on a different storyline. And those events tend to be happening at the same time, but you only get a glimpse into one part of the story at a time. Well, that's what's happening here at the end of 1 Samuel. The events described for us in chapters 27 to 31 are almost all happening in and around the same time. They're just happening to different people in different places. So while Saul is visiting the witch of Endor and preparing for the battle that will result in his own death, David is somewhere else entirely and facing challenging circumstances of his own. So what I want to do this morning is to look at the closing chapters of 1 Samuel that focus on David's storyline. So that's chapters 27, 29, and 30, and just a couple of verses in chapter 28 as well. And I want us to imagine that that each chapter is like an episode of a box set or a TV series, and the storyline is building and evolving all the time towards the end of season one of the box set. First Samuel, season one, is coming to an end, and the story unfolds, and the author has arranged things intentionally so that we have much to learn about God and how we should live for him in his world. So let's get into the action. Episode One, if you like, chapter 27. We've given it the title, Crossing the Line. What's going on here? Well, David flees from Saul. He seeks refuge at the hand of the Philistines, who were, of course, the sworn enemies of God's people, people who David had himself defeated in battle many, many times. And his seeking refuge with them was actually a move of desperation and a sign of weakness on the part of David. It was a decision that suggested that David was doubting the promises of God and that he was listening to the thoughts of his own heart more than he was listening to the voice of God. Even here, right in verse one of chapter 27, there's a lesson for us, isn't there? Then, just as now, following your own heart was just about the worst thing you could do. And so David, along with his band of 600 fighting men, finds himself in this place called Ziklag, which was given to him by a Philistine king, a man called Achish. And Achish seems to have welcomed David with open arms, and David settles there for a total of 16 months. And during that time, David would go raiding into nearby territories and plunder them. And when doing so, the writer tells us that he would not leave a single man or woman alive, that they took spoils for themselves. And then you might have noticed in the reading, when Achish asked David about where he had been plundering and raiding, David lies to him. He tells him that he has been plundering Israelite peoples in verse 10. And so because of this, Achish thinks that David is the bee's knees. He trusts him implicitly. He even makes him his own personal bodyguard at the beginning of chapter 28. So this is hardly a high point in David's life. He is in voluntary exile and alliance with his enemies. He then deceives those people and finds himself promoted to a position of military importance in the Philistine army. It's not the future king of Israel's finest hour, it has to be said. Now, we aren't meant to read these stories like Aesop's fables looking for moral guidance. The purpose of the author here is to draw our attention to the plans and purposes of God. 
And what we see in the ensuing chapters is that God is at work. Even in all of the weirdness and mess, he is at work in ways that David is often completely unaware of. So let's keep going then into chapter 28. Before the whole witch of Endor scene, there are a couple of verses at the start of chapter 28 pertaining to David. In those verses, David finds himself in a nightmare scenario. The inevitable has happened. The Philistines and the Israelites are going to war. And Achish now expects David to join him in battle against Saul and his countrymen. So David here faces a real conundrum. If on the one hand he refuses, then his allegiances will be revealed and his protection among the Philistines will be gone. But if on the other hand he agrees, then he will be forced to fight against his own people. So what's David's response? Well, it is at best very ambiguous. Look at chapter 28 and verse 2. Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do, is his response to Achish. It's a pretty non-committal answer, isn't it? We're left wondering if David is going to fight for the Philistines or for the Israelites, or if indeed there might be somewhere that he can get out of this whole messy situation altogether. It is a classic cliffhanger moment. It leaves us with bated breath ahead of the next episode. So next episode, chapter 29, we'll give this one the title, Marching with the Enemy. The events described for us here probably happen before the events described for us in chapter 28. They're chronologically out of order. The scene with Saul and the witch of Endor happens the night before the battle at Mount Gilboa in which Saul and his sons die. The events described for us in chapter 29 happens as the Philistines are on their way to that battle. So here the Philistines are gathering their forces. They're heading off to fight Saul and the Israelites. And look who marches at the rear of their forces. Verse 2 tells us that David is marching with Achish, seemingly heading into battle to fight alongside him. But the other commanders in the Philistine army are suspicious of David and his men. They express their concerns in verse 3. And in response, Achish seeks to reassure them that David can be trusted, that he has found no fault in him, verse 4, which is, of course, incredibly ironic because David has been lying to him and deceiving him this whole time. But the Philistine commanders aren't convinced by Achish's arguments in favor of David, and so they insist that he is sent back to Ziklag. They simply don't trust him. In their eyes, he is the Philistine slayer, They know his reputation as being a fierce fierce warrior who has been responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of Philistines. And so Achish sends David back to Ziklag, and despite his feigned protestations in verse 8, David here, I think, must have been mightily relieved. He doesn't have to face the choice of either betraying his own people or betraying his Philistine host. Rather, he has been provided with a way out of this whole sorry mess. It's interesting here, isn't it, that the only reference to God in this whole chapter comes from Achish in verse 6. That has led some of the commentators to suggest that Achish was actually converted by this stage, that he himself had come to be a believer in Yahweh, the God of Israel. The text isn't conclusive about that. 
But I have come to be pretty convinced, I think, over the course of this week that that might well have been the case. You can talk to me afterwards about that if you want to ask more. Nonetheless, for now, it's enough for us to note that he is the only one here who mentions God at all. And that is meant to be surprising for us. Because nowhere in these chapters so far have we seen David mentioning God. And the author wants us to see that the providential hand of God is at work in protecting and preserving David despite his foolish choices. And in spite of the fact that David seems to have wandered somewhat from God here. There are very few obvious signs of God at work in David's life. But all along, even throughout David's sinfulness and deceit, God is at work. And God is at work not only in saving David from a really tricky situation, or in saving David from Saul, or in saving David from the Philistines, perhaps most significantly of all, God is at work in saving David from himself. Think about it. What foreign ruler would ever have trusted David as a future king if he had fought in this battle and betrayed either his own people or his Philistine host? Or even think about David's own band of 600 men and followers here. How would they ever have had any confidence in the integrity of their leader when he spoke with such ambiguous and deceptive words? We're meant to see that God is graciously at work here in saving David from his own foolishness and intervening for his own long-term good. We're also then meant to see the parallels in our own lives as well. Perhaps you go through periods of time where there are very few obvious signs of God at work in your life. And yet it may well be that you come in years down the line to look back upon seasons in your life and recognize that the Lord has providentially intervened in many ways perhaps in ways that at the time you have known little or nothing about, but in the grand scheme of things, ways in which you will be deeply thankful for. Perhaps some of those interventions might frustrate you at the time, but in God's providential grace, there are interventions that are actually saving you from your own folly and unbelief. John Piper, back in 2012, tweeted something that I've never forgotten. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might only be aware of three of them. What an incredible thought, that at any given time, each of us might see only a tiny, tiny fraction of what God is doing in our lives, and that even the parts that we do see might make very little sense to us. These chapters ought to remind us that God is providentially at work in the lives of his people for our good and for his glory. And it's all by his grace. It's not because there's anything good in us or impressive about us. That certainly wasn't the case here with David. Nonetheless, if you're a believer saved by grace, then by that same grace, God is at work in your life. And that ought to encourage us, especially in the times where we are unaware of exactly what he's up to in our lives. What about the the final episode then in this series? How do things finish up at the end of 1 Samuel for David? That brings us to chapter 30, titled this one, From Tears to Triumph. 
Upon his return to the city of Ziklag, David and his men are met with what must have seemed like a tragedy to them. The Amalekites, some of those people who David had been off raiding in chapter 27, they're other enemies of Israel. Well, they have attacked the city of Ziklag while David has been away. They have burned it. They have taken captive all the women and children within it. It's interesting, isn't it, that just as David and his men are relieved to have escaped one battle, no sooner have they done that than they're met with another challenge and another difficulty to face. It's true in the Christian life, isn't it, that we can't let our guard down for even a moment. We can't relax from battle mode for even a moment. There are always Amalekites just around the corner. And so David and his men arrive back to see the destruction And once they realize that all of their wives and children have been captured, verse 4 tells us that they wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Remember, these are big and strong fighting men. They are experienced and battle-hardened soldiers. But they are reduced to tears here at what has happened. And those tears quickly lead to bitterness and anger. And in verse 6, the writer tells us that some of David's men contemplate stoning him. Clearly, they think that he is to blame for this disaster that has befallen them. There are echoes here of Moses and the children of Israel. Back in Exodus chapter 17, they too want to stone Moses, their leader, before actually a great victory over the Amalekites. And here, David's men want to stone him before what we will see becomes a great victory over the Amalekites. So David is at a real low point here. He has been spared the horror of fighting in one battle against his own people. But now he finds his entire leadership and indeed his very life under threat. He is absolutely on the ropes here. His back is firmly against the wall. He is facing the prospect of losing everything. And crucially, it's at this point that the writer tells us that David finds his strength in the Lord. Chapter 30 and verse 6, I think, is a real turning point here for David. It's a point in his life when he has no strength left, verse 4, but he finds strength in God, verse 6. In each of these episodes so far, there has been no mention of David's relationship with God. It has been conspicuous by its absence. Most of the commentators agree that David was in what we might call a backslidden state, in chapters 27 to 29. He had forgotten the promises of God. He was acting out of fear and disbelief. But this marks a turning point. He consults with God again. He listens to God's word again in the form of the the ephod in verse seven. And the Lord then tells him to pursue the Amalekites and that his rescue attempt will be a success. Verse eight. There are lessons here too for us, aren't there? Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that your relationship with God is not what it once was. Or perhaps it's not, that, it's not all that it should be. Perhaps like David, you too have found yourself wandering from God or doubting his promises. The invitation for us here is to return to the Lord to listen to him afresh through his word, to allow his strength 
to renew and restore our hearts. One of the things that the writer wants us to see here is that the God of the Bible is an expert in restoring broken things. And he delights to see his wandering children come back to him. One of the things we believe here as we gather together for corporate worship is that we believe that Jesus is here with us. And he is not here to make you feel guilty. He is not here to deal with you reluctantly. He is not here to scold you. He is here to restore you if you will let him. So David then sets off in the second part of chapter 30 with his, with his men, but 200 of them are left behind because they're too exhausted to continue. So it's a force of just 400 who attempt this rescue mission. And en route, their pursuit is helped by coming across an Egyptian slave. He has been abandoned by the Amalekites and he leads David and his men to his former masters. You can read about that in verses 11 to 15. And David and his men find the Amalekites eating and drinking and reveling. And it seems as though they are too drunk to fight effectively because none of them get away except 400 young men. They are otherwise completely routed. It is a roaring success for David and his men. And one of the things that the author is doing here is inviting us to compare and contrast David and Saul's ventures against the Amalekites. So you might remember way, way, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was told by God to wipe out the Amalekites and he refuses to do so. And we can trace the begin of his decline right back to that moment. But here, David's victory over those same people is decisive. He is the one who completes the judgment of God in these people. We are seeing a changing of the guard played out right before our very eyes. So David and his men win a great victory. They recover their wives and children as well as much plunder from the Amalekites. And of course, the author again is seeking to further draw our attention to the contrasting fortunes of David and Saul here. Remember, all of this is happening in and around the same time. So while David is off defeating his enemies and rescuing those closest to him, what's happening to Saul? He is losing in battle. He is dying shamefully. And those closest to him are dying as well. The descent of Saul is complete. The ascent of David is in full flow. David's rise is further emphasized for us in this chapter by his generosity he recognizes that his men, sorry, recognize that the plunder is his. They are delighted with him. It's a complete turnaround, isn't it, from verse six. They go from wanting to stone him to being delighted with him. Some of the men, however, don't want the plunder to be shared with the 200 men who have stayed behind. But David recognized that the battle belongs to the Lord. And so the plunder also belongs to the Lord. His thinking here is a long way from the beginning of chapter 27, isn't it? His thinking here is very God-centered. He now sees things completely differently. He is not thinking about his own heart or in a self-centered way. And so he graciously gives gifts to those who don't deserve it. Notice too how, how David refers to his men in the chapter. He calls them his brothers. It's the mark, isn't it, of a humble king? He doesn't think of himself as being above his men. 
And so here he is a forerunner of the Lord Jesus, the most glorious and yet the most humble of kings, who in the gospels is not ashamed to call his subjects his brothers and sisters. David further foreshadows in his foreshadows Jesus in his giving of gifts. He sends plunder to some of the elders of Judah. You read that in the closing verses, showing himself to be a generous ruler. Now, of course, this is a shrewd political move on his part. He will later rule these people, and so it's best to do so, having shown himself to be a friend and an ally. But clearly here we see that David is a king who gives and gives and gives to his subjects. And so it is with our King Jesus. He too gives and gives and gives to his subjects. Supremely, he has given himself for the church, but he also gives us his spirit so that we can live for him here as the church. So that in the hundreds of different places that God has scattered us this week, as his redeemed people, we too can live lives of generous grace in the different places and contexts that he has us. So as we draw all of this to a close this morning, as season one, 1 Samuel, comes to an end, what are we to make of it all? In the closing chapters, we've seen how the action switches between Saul and David. The author is painting a very intentional picture for us. There are two kings in Israel, two kingdoms, two courts, two armies, two very different trajectories. Saul's downfall is complete. David's reign is about to begin. And in the next season, in the second Samuel, we'll see that some of the same characters return. There are some new characters that come on the scene. The story will continue to make many twists and turns, and David's own story will continue to be something of a mixed bag. But the consistent thread and theme running throughout this whole story is that God is at work in all of the highs and in all of the lows. He is the God who has bound himself to these people absolutely. And so he is the God who will make sure that his purposes for them are fulfilled. And so we need to know this morning that this God is our God. That he has bound himself to us absolutely and completely. He has done so supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when we look out on our world and we see all of the highs and lows, we look at all of the twists and turns, we see all of the sin and mess. We know that God is still at work in redeeming a people for himself. And so we must trust him and keep on serving him as faithfully as we can. And even as we look on in our own lives and we see all of the highs and the lows and the twists and the turns and the sin and the mess, we can have confidence that because of God's grace, he is still at work in our lives, that he will carry out his work to perfect completion in our lives. And so we should be encouraged as his church this morning, encouraged to keep going to keep following our true King Jesus so that we might see his plans and purposes accomplished in our stories for his glory. Let's pray together.
the David we have been thinking about this morning is the David who is able to write in Psalm 118. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that in these ancient stories we see something of our own experience of faith. Sometimes, if we're honest, we do feel as though we are pushed back and about to fall. And sometimes, if we're honest, more often than not, that is due to our own sin and foolishness. Lord, please be merciful to us. Thank you that in the gospel you know us and you see us right down to the bottom. And yet, thank you that you have bound yourself to us completely and absolutely in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to rest afresh today in the joy of his salvation and to follow him faithfully in the week that lies ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.